Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. This solo episode is going to be a practical guide to transitioning away from calorie tracking. Now, this may or may not be a two-part episode. I always start these solo episodes thinking that it will be a single 20 to 30 minute episode and then occasionally I surprise myself and I talk for an hour and I end up breaking the episode into two. Will this happen this time? We shall see. Anyway, the key word from the title of this episode is transitioning, meaning that at this moment in time, you want to stop tracking calories and macros. However, this doesn't mean that you can never do it again. I find that it's very common to adopt this all or nothing mindset whereby you're always doing something or you're never doing it again. Tracking your calories and macros is a tool like many other, and you can come back to it, as I'm going to explore more later in the episode as well. I also think it's a good time of the year for this podcast, because the holidays are coming up, and there are a lot of people who are going to have a lot of festive and social meals, or at least one. And I don't think it's particularly helpful to try to track these social meals. I mean, can you imagine you're sitting at the table at Christmas dinner and you go, hey, grandma, did you happen to have a list of all the ingredients you used and the precise quantities of each one? And then you plug all of these into my fitness pal as a recipe, and then you divide the total into the number of portions. So then now you have the calories and macros for your own portion. And then you repeat this process with every single food that you eat. Yeah, probably not happening, right? So making an episode about how to transition away from tracking, I believe will be really valuable if you're in this situation. Anyway, I want to make this episode applicable to both a short-term scenario in which you want to take a break from tracking for a few days or a week or a couple of weeks for example, during these upcoming festive periods, but also to a long-term scenario where you want to stop tracking for good, at least for now, for the foreseeable future. Before I get into this, though, I want to explain my current philosophy, and I say current because my thoughts are always subject to change as I evolve as a coach, regarding calorie tracking. In other words, I want to explain to you when I think it's helpful to track your calories. And there are two main scenarios in which I believe that calorie tracking can be really helpful. The first scenario would be when you can't trust your body's hunger and fullness signals yet. For instance, when you're underweight 
or when you are overweight relative to your own individual dual intervention point range, then your hunger and fullness hormones may not be working as they should. And when I mention your individual dual point, dual intervention point range, I mean a range between two intervention points as proposed by Speakman, he's a researcher, and I really like his model, whereby you have a lower intervention point below which your body is really uncomfortable in that your body fat is too lean and you have a higher intervention point past which above which your body is really uncomfortable because you are carrying too much body fat now when you fall above or below these two intervention points according to this model then your hunger and fullness hormones are not going to work as normal. So you may not be able to trust yourself just yet. Another situation in which you may not be able to trust these uh, signals would be in some cases if you are neurodivergent. There are some neurodivergent people who are actually really sensitive to their hunger and fullness cues, but there are others who really can tell if they are hungry, if they are full. So if you are, in one of these situations or both, calorie tracking could be really, really helpful to teach you how much to eat to support your current goal. The second scenario is when you're in a challenging phase of your fitness adventure. And typically that's fat loss or muscle gain because they're both more difficult than weight maintenance. Although again, if you've never done it before, even weight maintenance can be challenging for you. Having said that, you can also become advanced enough to decide to go into a deficit or into a surplus without tracking. And I've done it with several of my clients. Anyway, typically being a surplus or being a deficit is more challenging than simply trying to maintain your weight, which is why calorie tracking can be really helpful. But also, if you're pursuing a performance-specific goal, then especially a very ambitious one or one that you've never you've never attempted before then tracking can be really helpful for example if you have a really ambitious endurance goal like you're training to run a marathon you've never eaten like a person who's training to run a marathon so tracking your calories and macros can ensure that you're eating enough calories to support your training, but also, for example, enough carbohydrates to fuel your endurance performance. In other words, if you can already do what calorie tracking helps you do, then you don't need to track. You can still do it if you like it. For example, I really love numbers, so I also really enjoy tracking, but you don't have to in order to achieve your goals. That's why I use calorie and macro tracking with the majority of my clients, especially with those who have never followed a structured and consistent training program and dietary approach before, because they don't yet have the skills to be able to get the same results without tracking. But when they do gain those skills through coaching, if they don't enjoy tracking, then I also help them transition away from it. Of course, there are some clients for whom 
tracking calories and macros isn't appropriate at any stage in this season of their life. For example, if they have disordered eating habits that can be made worse by tracking their calories. So in that scenario, I would never push calorie tracking on them. But outside of this particular case, that's why I believe that tracking calories can be so helpful to many people, at least in the short term, to gain these skills so that they can then go off, transition away from tracking, and continue achieving the results that they want or maintain the results that they've already achieved. So having clarified my perspective on tracking calories, I'm now going to start by exploring a short-term scenario in which you want to take a temporary break from tracking your calories. And I'm going to discuss suggestions for both a typical day of eating and for an atypical day of eating that includes at least one festive or social meal. When it comes to eating without tracking on a typical day, the name of the game is to focus on your habits. I find that when people track their calories and macros for a time and they get really good results with this approach, they then become fearful of not tracking any longer for a period of time because they still remember what their habits looked like before tracking and they associate tracking with this improvement in their habits. And they almost lead themselves to believe that if they stop tracking, they will also lose all of the habits that they have built. But that could not be further from the truth. If you stop tracking, that doesn't mean that you're going to stop literally everything, quote unquote, fitness that you've been doing so far. Whenever I have a client who's a little bit anxious about not tracking for a period of time, I usually ask them, if you didn't track today, would you stop eating what you're eating and suddenly switch to takeaway, fast food, and high calorie snacks all day, every day? And the answer is always no. So don't panic. Your habits aren't going anywhere just because you're taking calorie tracking away for a period of time. And now I want to talk you through the fundamental habits that I emphasize with my clients to ensure success during an untracked phase. Habit number one is your meal structure. I have a whole podcast episode on how to create a meal structure. That was episode 48, a comprehensive guide to meal planning and prepping. So if you want the full version, go listen to that episode The link to it is in the show notes as per usual. But the TLDL version, too long, didn't listen, is that you want to stick to the typical number of daily meals and snacks that you've always had so far while tracking. And ideally, you want to eat them around the same time of day most days. The reason is that this structure is going to help regulate your hunger and fullness levels because you can actually train your body to get used to expecting food at a certain time. So as a result, your body will start producing hunger hormones and releasing them around that time. As a result of 
more regulated hunger and fullness levels, you're not grazing all day long and then overeating at the end of the day when your hunger finally catches up with you because you've been under eating and under fueling, fueling the whole time. So maintaining your meal structure is my first and foremost suggestion. Then the second habit that I emphasize is maintain your staple foods. And again, this is most applicable on a typical day. And I'm going to cover what to do when you have a social or festive meal later on. But for now, I recommend that you stick to those staple fruit and vegetables, protein sources, carb sources, and health-promoting dietary fat sources that you know you enjoy and that have been helping you towards your fitness goals so far, because they will continue to do so they will continue to be just as effective whether you track their calories or not, of course. The third habit that I suggest clients emphasize is maintaining your portion sizes. One of the greatest benefits of calorie and macro tracking is that it can teach you the most appropriate portion sizes for your unique needs, not the generic one-size-fits-all serving sizes printed on food packaging. Not only that, but they can also teach you the most appropriate portion sizes for different goals because your portion sizes will change if you're in a deficit, if you're at calorie maintenance, or if you're in a surplus. So before you take this break from tracking, make sure that you observe what your current calories and macros look like on your plate on a meal-to-meal and a snack-to-snack basis. For example, How big is your typical chicken breast? How many bread slices do you normally eat in a single meal? How many almonds do you snack on? A very useful way to measure your portion sizes is by comparing them to the size of your hand or to the size of your fingers, because unless somebody cuts your hand off, your hand is never going to change size. If you were using a bowl or a plate and then you eat from a different bowl or a different plate, maybe at a restaurant or um, somewhere else, it can get challenging to visualize the correct portion sizes. Whereas if you're using your hand, you're taking your hand with you everywhere. So it's very important that you don't just rely on tracking your calories and macros as a crutch and you just focus on hitting the numbers. You need to study your actual plate and take at least mental notes. And when I say at least, you can even take it a step further. For instance, when a client has never done this before, they've never taken a break from tracking before, I recommend that they take pictures of their every meal and snack for at least a day or two. So then they can keep these pictures for future reference after they stop tracking. So if they're a little bit unsure of their portion sizes, they can always refer back to the pictures. Finally, you can also make it into a game. You can challenge yourself to portion out your food and you try to guess the weight as close as possible to what you're actually putting on the scale. And over time, you find that with practice, your guess will be more and more correct. Yes, it will never be as accurate as weighing everything, but if you get it right enough, that's plenty to be within the ballpark of the calories and macros that you need. 
Now, moving on to my suggestions for a, an atypical day, the name of the game here is to focus on achieving a balance of nutrients across the day or across a couple of days, not within one single meal. And what I mean by that is that typically you may be used to trying to create a balanced meal with a portion of protein, a portion of carbs, a portion of dietary fat, and um, a portion of vegetables or fruit. However, if you're having a festive or social meal, you may choose to have a meal that's not exactly balanced, but you can still achieve that balance of nutrients and calories across one or multiple days. And you can do that by following the next three suggestions that I have for you. Suggestion number one is to choose the purpose of every meal. And in the context of this episode, a meal can have two main purposes. One is, let's call it fitness, meaning that with this meal, you're aiming to hit the right food choices to create an appropriate balance of carbs, fats, and protein, plus the appropriate portion sizes to keep you satisfied, but neither too full nor too hungry. The other purpose is, I want to call it decadence, in that you're choosing atypical foods in atypical portions. For instance, you want to add a portions or a portion of Christmas pudding that you wouldn't normally have and you tack it on your Christmas dinner or when normally you would have one portion of carbs in one meal. Now you're having potatoes and you're also having a couple of Yorkshire puddings again with your Christmas dinner. As I mentioned in episode 71, just about a month ago, you can choose to eat, in quotes, non-fitness foods, and you can also choose to overeat at certain meals, like festive or social meals, and you can also do so and still maintain your current results or sometimes even make extra gains on top of the results you've already achieved. However, I completely understand that eating decadence-focused meals on purpose when you're supposed to be hashtag fitness isn't easy to do without at least a bit of guilt in our modern society where highly palatable food often takes on the non-too-flattering title of junk or bad food, which is why it was so important to me to come up with the word decadence-focused meal instead of junk meal or bad meal or indulgent meal, which all have a negative connotation in my view. Now, if you're feeling guilty, then guilt makes you feel out of control. So you may regret the decision that you made regarding that decadence-focused meal. You might think of it as a bad decision and possibly go into what I call fuck it mode until January or until the next Monday at any other time of year, because in quotation marks, you've already ruined it. Or vice versa, you don't go into fuck it mode, by which I mean you overeat multiple days in a row, but instead you could restrict for weeks on end after this, in quotation marks, accident, because you're afraid of, quotation marks again, slipping up again. 
I don't want either of these scenarios to become real for you. So in order to enjoy any meal that you decide will be decadence focused, first of all, keep these meals in perspective. A handful of them over a month, over a year, over, a, over any period of time is unlikely to outdo all of the time that you've already spent and will likely spend in the future eating a more, let's call it, fitness-focused diet. As I covered in a lot more depth, including scientific research to back up what I was saying too, in episode 71. In addition to that, you want to make conscious and informed decisions about the meals that are going to be decadence-focused, what you're going to eat at these meals, and how much you are going to eat. And third, you want to choose these more decadence-focused meals before they happen. On these occasions, you need to accept that you're not going to have perfectly balanced meals because you've literally decided that that was not going to be the purpose of that meal. So hopefully, if you keep all of this in mind, you will be able to avoid or at least reduce any society-induced guilt and just fucking enjoy your decadence-focused meal. I don't really swear very often, so if I am swearing, it's because I feel very strongly about this. Now, my second suggestion on an atypical day is to consider the balance of nutrients in your decadence-focused meal, because this is going to help you strike a balance of nutrients and calories across the entire day or or across a few days, rather than meal to meal, as as I was saying earlier, because achieving a balance within a meal, within a decadence-focused meal, it's not going to happen because, again, that's not the point of it. The point is to make it more decadence-focused. Now, let's use a practical example so that I can really make sure that you understand where I'm coming from with this. First off, I googled typical Christmas dinner, and Wikipedia gave me this definition. Traditional Christmas dinner features turkey with stuffing, mashed potatoes, gravy, cranberry sauce, and vegetables. Other types of poultry, roast beef or ham, are also used. Pumpkin or apple pie, raisin pudding, Christmas pudding, or fruitcake are staples for dessert. Now, I get the impression that this Wikipedia page was written by somebody who's based in the States. So if you are in the UK, you'll also likely be consuming Yorkshire pudding with your Christmas dinner. And let's not forget Brussels sprouts and parsnips. And I love both of them. That's why they cannot go unmentioned. Anyway, let's break down this decadence-focused meal into the three macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fats. So your protein sources will be turkey, roast beef, and ham. Your carb sources will include the mashed potatoes, the cranberry sauce, the Yorkshire pudding, the pumpkin or apple pie, the raisin pudding, the Christmas pudding, and the fruitcake. Whereas your dietary fat sources uh, include the gravy, the stuffing, oil and or butter, if if either of these or both are used to cook anything. Then there will be some fats in the uh, pumpkin and apple pie, in the raisin pudding, in the Christmas pudding, and in the fruitcake as well. And finally, you have your vegetables, so parsnips, carrots, Brussels sprouts, peas, any other vegetable that you may choose to prepare. 
this type of uh, typical Christmas dinner, assuming you have a little bit of everything, would result in you likely eating more than usual for all three macronutrients because you have at least two choices or more for each one of them and you have a lot of choices for carbs and fats whereas typically you'd probably have maybe one or two protein sources in a meal one if it's an animal-based protein source like a chicken breast or two if you are vegan for example so it might be that you get your combined total protein for, for that meal from both rice and beans. Then you might have one source of carbohydrates and one source of fat. And finally, one to three vegetables or fruits, depending on how fancy you feel about making fruit and vegetables for that particular meal. What's really helpful to really visualize the decadence-focused meal and help you choose what it is that you're likely going to eat is to write it down or talk it out with your coach. I actually do it all the time with my clients. We talk about which festive meals they're going to have, which of these they want to be decadence-focused, and for each of the decadence-focused ones, we talk about what exactly will be available and what it is that they want to eat out of the available fare. Finally, now that you have this uh, list of foods that you're going to want to eat at your decadence-focused meal, you want to consider which nutrients are overabundant in this um, decadence-focused meal and which ones are missing, if any. For instance, let's say that you're really big on dessert and you also want mashed potatoes. In that case, you're going to have an overabundance of carbs and potentially fats if the dessert contains fats and if the mashed potatoes were cooked with something like oil or butter. In addition to that, if you want to have turkey with stuffing and then you also want, again, dessert, you will have an overabundance of fats for sure from the stuffing, from minimal fat in the turkey and from the dessert. So in the remaining meals on that day, which will be more fitness focused, then you want to prioritize the missing nutrients. So your protein, your vegetables, and your fruits. And you want to do that in combination with listening to your hunger and fullness cues. What I mean by that is that most people won't be all that hungry after their decadence-focused meals. So you may find yourself naturally wanting to eat less. But you may be hungry when you wake up and in the hours leading up to the dec decadence-focused meal. So you may choose to eat perhaps smaller meals than usual, but you don't want to be fasting and starving yourself until the decadence-focused meal. Because this strategy makes you feel like you're saving calories for the upcoming meal, but actually almost always backfires, as I want to cover later on, and you, up, and you end up eating more calories than you intend to at the actual uh, decadence-focused meal. Okay, now I've covered the main advice for both typical days and atypical days, and I have some remaining suggestions that apply to both atypical and typical days. And suggestion number one is to respect your body. On a typical day, what 
I mean by respecting your body is that you want to eat, start eating, when you're genuinely hungry. You're not just peckish and you're not starving either. And you want to stop eating when you're satisfied and you have the energy to carry on until your next meal or snack. But if somebody offered you cake, you could find some space for it. And at the same time, you're also not too hungry. This takes practice, especially if, as I was saying before, you're in a position where your hunger and fullness cues may be dysregulated because you are overweight or underweight. Now, on that note, I also want to um, clarify that for some people, just like the range of body fat levels within which your body is comfortable is individual, your hunger and fullness hormone release will be very individual. So you may correspond to the overweight category based on your BMI, but you may still have perfectly fine hunger and fullness cues. So when I use the words overweight or underweight in this episode, I just want to make sure that it's absolutely clear that I'm not necessarily referring to the BMI, but I'm referring to the very individualized, your very individualized dual intervention point range. After making this clarification, I kind of forgot where I was going with my original point. So I was saying that this is going to take practice, yes, especially if you used to have dysregulated hunger and fullness cues. I believe I'm back on track mentally. But it will get easier over time, and also it will get easier if, as I suggested earlier, you stick to a regular meal structure. It is really, really important. Now, beyond the meal structure, there are also other ways in which you can help yourself better understand and attune yourself to your hunger and fullness cues. And they come down to what's called meal hygiene. So, as a lot of people know, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes for your gut to send a signal to your brain that you are satisfied. So, the first meal hygiene recommendation is to eat slowly. And while you're eating, be mindful. Instead of paying attention to your phone or to a screen or to any other distraction, really do your best to understand how you feel after every bite. Typically, the first bite is the most delicious because you are very hungry and because that flavor, that um, taste is new. Because there's an interesting concept called um, palate fatigue, I believe, or taste bud fatigue, whereby what could happen is that you get tired of a certain taste or flavor and you no longer want that food. Now, if you change taste or flavor quite drastically, you find yourself still being able to eat more, even if your body is no longer hungry. And this um, happens especially with highly palatable foods, which tend to have a really strong taste. For example, it's not uncommon to get palate fatigue from eating a savory meal, but then you still have as they call it, a second stomach. You can still eat dessert because it's no longer savory, now it's sweet. Anyway, by paying attention while you're eating, you can learn to detect when your 
hunger is starting to abate and when you're beginning to feel more and more satisfied in that the first bite is the most delicious. But then after every bite, you are less and less enthused with the food until at a certain point, you may find yourself eating just because you've tracked the calories of that meal, so you're supposed to eat it all, or just because the food is on the plate. And at that point, it bears asking yourself, do I want to finish this? Do I need to finish this? Or am I happy to move on? And maybe I move on to a different food, or I, I'm simply not hungry anymore, and I can save the rest for later, do the washing up, and move on. So while it can be difficult, and it can be a little bit um, scary to trust your own body instead of a calorie tracking up, if you haven't done it in a long time or if you've never done it before, it's certainly achievable with a meal structure and with mindfulness while eating. However, if you're new to it, give yourself time. Just like it was challenging to track your calories in the beginning, but then you got used to it, you will also get used to tracking your hunger and fullness cues. Now, on days that include at least one decadence-focused meal, I emphasize respecting your body before, during, and after said meal by avoiding undereating, but also avoiding overeating. So before the meal, if you typically eat something at that time of day, I suggest that you eat some form of that meal on an atypical day as well. For example, if your decadence-focused meal is at 12 p.m. and you never eat before 11 or 12 anyway, there's really no need to change your habits. But if you do normally have breakfast, let's say at 7 a.m., as I was saying before, you may choose to eat less than usual for this breakfast on this particular day because you know that you've got quite a lot of food planned for later, but you don't need to skip it altogether. And I'm going to circle back to what I was saying before, where I said that if you try to save as many calories as possible by fasting, if it's not your typical approach to the day, this type of strategy often backfires because it makes you so hangry, as in hungry and angry, that you end up eating way more than you intended to. And that would also be disrespectful to your body, but also it would be detrimental to your mental state because you're going to feel guilty about it, you're going to feel ashamed, and the whole point of having a decadence-focused meal is that you want to have fun with a different eating experience than you normally would have, so why would you want to spoil that fun? Now, I've already spoken at length about this, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but before and after the decadence-focused meal, you likely don't need the usual amount of food you'd eat on a typical day. So you want to focus on striking a balance across the whole day or across a couple of days to the best of your abilities. And when I say across a couple of days, it may be that on the day of the decadence-focused meal, with all your best intentions, you still end up feeling really full by the end of the day to where you're like, you know what, I think I overate above maintenance by quite a bit today. Well, you can still strike the balance across the week, even if you're not tracking your calories, because if you attune yourself to your hunger and fullness cues, you will find that the next day you are naturally less hungry, most likely. This can seem strange if you've been tracking your calories for a while, because for the sake of easy math, 
I and most other coaches will assign the same calorie target every day if the goal is, for example, calorie maintenance. So, for example, if I've estimated that a client's range for maintenance is 19 to 2000 calories, I'll give them that range for every single day. And then what matters is the average across the week. But most people conceptualize the target more easily if they try to hit 1900 to 2000 every day because they don't have to do a lot of mental math to figure out the weekly average. However, your body doesn't care about math and it's very normal for your calories when you're not tracking them and you're just living your life and listening to your hunger and fullness cues to fluctuate even by quite a bit day to day. So I wouldn't panic if the next day you're not very hungry and you find yourself not eating very much, if you did find yourself very, very full the previous day. Again, this isn't something that you engineer in that you are punishing yourself for the previous day by under eating the next day, but it is something that can happen. And when I say don't panic, what I mean is that you don't want to be overtly worried that you're adopting disordered behaviors. As long as you're honest with yourself and you ask yourself, am I genuinely not hungry for this? Then more power to you if you are able to discern that you really are not hungry or that you are actually hungry and you act accordingly. Then during the decadence-focused meal itself, as I've mentioned throughout this episode and in episode 71, you can choose to eat past the point of fullness on purpose. It is your meal. You decide what to do with it. But you also don't need to eat so much that you feel physically sick. Again, that would be a way to respect your body, avoiding that breaking point. And the last suggestion I have, which applies to both atypical days and typical days, is to stay active. Now, very importantly, I want to stress that there is no need to make up, in quotation marks, for the extra calories that you ate at a decadence-focused meal by doing more exercise or more steps than usual especially if you're going to do more to a very large extent to where you're effectively punishing yourself for that meal. But you also don't want to abandon your existing movement-focused habits either because moving enough, so not too little and not too much, is simply another way of respecting your body. And much like maintaining your meal structure, there is scientific evidence that staying active can help you keep your hunger and fullness hormones in proper working order. Not to mention that it's going to benefit your long-term goals, your mood, and your digestion. And, bonus, it can provide the perfect excuse to get some me time away from irritating family members. Am I right? Now, as I hypothesized at the beginning, I ended up talking a lot just about taking a short-term break from tracking calories. So I am going to conclude part one of this apparently two-part episode here. Now, as always, all of the relevant links to my website, my application form, my Instagram account are all in the show notes. Now, thank you so much for listening and until the next episode. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast 
and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.